0: And we're gonna see that followers of Jesus are invited to find hope and happiness in himself. That Jesus invites us to a life of hope and a life of happiness in himself. This isn't a trite, fickle happiness. This is a deep, real, meaningful happiness. So if you have your Bible, could you turn with me to Luke chapter six and we'll begin reading at verse 12. Hear God's word. During those days, he went out on to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon, who he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. After coming down with them, he stood on a level place with a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those tormented by unclean spirits were made well. The whole crowd was trying to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. Then looking up at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor because the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are now hungry because you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, insult you and slander your name as evil because of the son of man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven. For this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich for you've received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, would you guide us through your word? Spirit, would you convict us? And Jesus, may you magnify yourself, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we'll have three points as we walk through this, three ways that we're um, called to live a life of happiness and hopefulness. And the first thing that we notice is that we have people, that God gives us people. The text opens with a pretty profound statement that's just really easily passed by. It says that right in verse 12, that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray and to spend all night in prayer to God. One pastor said that this is Jesus' all-nighter prayer, right? Like if you've ever pulled an all-nighter in college, back when I was in college, that's how I used to write all of my research papers, um, is to pull an all-nighter in. But this is Jesus' pulling an all-nighter, and he's praying. And what is he praying for? He's praying for his disciples and those he would choose to be apostles. He's praying about, presumably, everything that is about to happen That as we walk through our text. Jesus doesn't do anything without prayer. And here we see that he prays for his apostles, the people Jesus prayed for. Jesus is a praying savior. He prayed for the men around him and he prayed for the people close to him. And even now, Jesus prays for his people. Hebrews says, therefore he that is Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus prays for his people and he prays for these apostles and he prays for us now but we see that Jesus doesn't just pray he also in shows like intentionality with picking his apostles he doesn't cast lots he doesn't gather all his disciples together and say uh you he doesn't randomly throw darts at a wall he doesn't He doesn't gamble about it. He doesn't cast lots. He he doesn't draw straws. He intentionally chooses people to call his apostles. Because here's the thing, all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. So all apostles are disciples, not all disciples are apostles. What is the difference? Well, apostles were chosen by Jesus to be the personal eyewitnesses of what he has done and would do. So Jesus chose them. They were people who spent time with Jesus, saw him and were supposed to be his eyewitnesses to everything he was gonna do in his ministry. And it was these apostles that he would build the church on. The apostles carry a unique authority because of their proximity to Jesus. They saw him, they spent time with him. Jesus pulls these men in close. And he chooses them, and he chose who to surround himself with. But the question is, why did he choose 12? Like, why would Luke, and why would all the gospel writers, for that matter, but why would Luke specifically highlight these? What's the point? Well, if you know your Bible, and some of you might, and some of you might not, and that's okay, but how many tribes of Israel were there? 12, right? There were 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, And what Luke is doing, and I think the reason why Jesus chose 12 is because he is redefining who the people of God are. He's redefining who the people of God are. This passage, friends, is a recasting of Exodus. This passage is a recasting of the Exodus story. Because Jesus is redeeming Israel in its history. If you know the story of the people of God in the Old Testament, they were enslaved in Egypt for four hundred years, and they were um, had to do all sorts of hard labor and God led the people of uh, out of Egypt through Moses, his prophet Moses, and into the wilderness and then Moses goes up onto a mountain to receive the law and now we hear see Jesus come down from a mountain with his people. See, Jesus is redefining the people of God and he's redefining them as his apostles and his disciples. So Jesus, Jesus prays for his people. He chooses his people. But if you look at this group together, they're kind of a mess. This is an unlikely group of people because we got tax collectors and zealots as Jesus's inner circle now these this is like having polar opposites political parties in your inner circle these aren't these aren't centrist here these are tax collectors people who sold themselves to Rome and zealots people who are sometimes violently opposed to Rome Jesus pulls in to his family to his inner circle. We have fishermen and nobodies. We have people that fish for a living. They're not the honorables of society. We have people we don't even know much about them or who they are. Jesus pulls them in. And we got, in this group, we have doubters and betrayers because we got Thomas and we have Judas. Why would Jesus choose Thomas and Judas? I don't know. Thomas is famous for doubting Jesus after he was risen from the dead. He didn't believe it until he touched the, his hands and feet inside. And Judas would later betray Jesus. But we notice Jesus chooses all these people to pull in. And as an aside, I find it kind of comforting that someone like Thomas, who doubts, is pulled in close to Jesus. Jesus pulls together people that aren't likely and friends what I love about this picture what I love about these fishermen and nobodies and tax collectors and and zealots and opposite sides of the political pers- persuasions and and uh, doubters coming together and people who would who would eventually walk away like Judas what I love about this picture that Jesus of this people that Jesus prays for is that it looks like you and me it looks like The church, the people of God. Because there's space here for the politically diverse. We got Democrats and Republicans. The economically diverse, we got rich and poor and everything in between. The demographically diverse, we have young and old. All kinds of people surrounding Jesus. In the primary person, the primary definer of this people is not their politics, is not their background, is not their family story, is not the things that they've done. The primary thing that defines God's people is Jesus, their love for Jesus. And have you ever thought about just how unique the church is, the people that Jesus calls us to belong to? You ever thought about the fact that like, there are people in your life because of the church that you might not normally be friends with, but because of your love for Jesus, you're surrounded by people in different ages, in different life stages, and just the beautiful thing that God pulls us all together to worship him. There is no place on earth like the church. These are the people that God has chosen to be around himself. And these are the people that God chooses to impact the world through. A while ago, Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote a book called The Team of Rivals. And it tells some of you may have read it. It was really, really popular. Um, But it talks about Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln clinched the Republican nomination back in 1860. And leading up to that moment, he faced um, some very strong-willed opposition for that particular Nomination to be president. But when Lincoln was nominated, a surprise came when he chose his rivals to be in his political cabinet. And it was kind of a messy situation. You can read the book if you want to. Um, But this team of rivals, this team of unlikely allies, did a lot of good, including the emancipation of slaves and the holding of the union together. They would have a ripple effect that we're still feeling the effects of today. And friends, Jesus pulls together his people, these apostles in his church to impact the world through. And we are living the ripple effect of these 12 apostles being chosen right now. In the world, in eternity, will live the ripple effect of us following after Jesus to see men and women come to follow him too. We have the blessing of being counted among his people. Chosen, and God wants to do great things through us, his people. So we have the blessing of his people. We have the second, we have the blessing of his presence. Text moves on in verse 17. It says, after coming down with them, he stood at a level place with a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And here we just kind of see something beautiful that we've seen the past couple of weeks that the text keeps bringing us to. And that is Jesus is so present with his people. He comes down from this mountain. You got this crowd of people surrounding him, pressing in on Jesus. And what Jesus doesn't have is bodyguards pushing him back. His his apostles aren't bouncers now, like saying, give Jesus some space. Jesus is present with his people, he is an approachable savior and he sees them. He's not distant, but he's present. He's not distracted. He's attentive to the people around him. He's not looking off in a distance, letting out deep sighs, like when is this going to be over and these people are going to go home. He's not looking at his phone. He sees everyone and he sees their needs. Jesus is with his people. He's with them. He's among them. He notices them. And it's here among the people with the wounds, the people that need healing, the people that are poor, that are broken, that Jesus chooses to exercise his power. If you look at the text, it says that that people were tormented by unclean um, spirits. It says that they were healed of their diseases and said the whole crowd was trying to touch him because power was just coming out of him. Like Jesus is present with his people and it's in the presence of his people that his power is experienced. Jesus is powerful and his power isn't felt in the halls of Rome. It's not felt in the Roman forum. It's not manifested in the Roman Senate. It's not in Congress. It's among the people that know that they need him. That is where the presence of Jesus can be found. And it's no different today. His power and his presence show up among the people that he's chosen to call to himself. If you want to encounter Christ, get around his people. He's there. You don't have to go looking far. But friends, I also want you to see that Jesus is very popular. He seems to attract all kinds of people now who are in various spiritual proximities to him. If you look, you you have mentioned like the apostles are with him and you have mentioned of the disciples. These are people that are obviously close to Jesus. They're committed. They're bought in. They, they know what Jesus is about and they're they are here for it. They want to know what Jesus is going to say. They are spiritually mature and they are spiritually committed to Jesus but presumably because of everything that happened in the last couple of chapters, that there are some people there that are spectators. They're really interested in what Jesus can do. Like the power stuff is fascinating. They wanna go see it. The Pharisees might also be in this group of people. After all, they were just trying to call out Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners and healing on the Sabbath and not fasting and all that stuff. But we see that they're just kind of spectators. They're there for it. And then there's those we don't even get. It's like, where did the people from Tyre and Sidon come from? Who are they? Well, from what we know, these are like old, rich oppressors of God's people. And where did they come from? I'm not sure. But I think it's interesting that Jesus kind of draws all sorts of people into his proximity, into his orbit. And we don't always know who those people are. And we don't always know what God is doing with those people transforming people who are spectators into disciples. Because he does it all the time. He does it with his presence. He does it with his people. He does it through his power. And he does it through his teaching. Which brings us to our last point. Perspective. So God blesses us with a people to belong to, a people that he prays for. God blesses with his presence in and among and through his people. And the last thing he gives his people is a perspective. He gives his people a perspective. Everything in our text up to this point has been building to this moment in the text where Jesus is gonna kind of lay out some teaching, some very clear teaching, really for the first time that we see. And it says, then in verse 20, then looking up at his disciples, he said, Jesus attentive to his people. Jesus seeing them. And he begins his most famous teaching that we have. And I want you to see that just as Moses went up to a mountain, right, Moses went up to a mountain for 40 days, 40 nights to get the law from God, right, he comes down to his people that have really made a hash of things. They built a golden calf. So, but he, Moses gives the law to these people. He comes, goes up from, from up on the mountain down to his people, gives them the law. And this law was supposed to be the thing that defined the people of God in the Old Testament for how they were to live and function and work and play and rest and worship. And all of it was in that law. This was going to define God's people. Well, now here is Jesus going up from a mountain with God, coming down to his people, and now he's teaching. This is a recasting, a retelling of the law. This is what God's people were going to live by and define themselves by. This was the teaching that we were supposed to live by. This is a new perspective, and Jesus is giving people a new framework for how to live and be in the world and relate to others. In this perspective, we'll redefine what blessedness and happiness mean. You see, the word for the word blessed, the Greek word is the word makarios. And it basically means happy or whole. So Jesus is kind of giving us what the happy and whole life really is. This is philosopher Jesus saying, unlocking the key to Actually, living meaningfully in the world. And these kinds of sayings, these what uh, they're called, macaroi. They, these kind of sayings were popular in the culture. And now here is Jesus is laying out for his people this new perspective. And he says this. We'll put it up on the screen. It says, "Blessed or happy or whole are you who are poor, because the kingdom of God is yours." Blessed are you who are hungry now because you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. It's kind of like when you read it, you're like, really, Jesus? Happy is the poor? Happy are the hungry? Whole? It's the person that people don't like. I don't understand. Well, let's kind of walk through these. Jesus first talks about the poor and we need to understand that when he is talking about the poor, this isn't just talking about the socioeconomically poor people. What Jesus is talking about are those who know their need for Jesus. There are those that regardless of the amount in their bank account, regardless of their health status, Recognize that they're still depleted, overdrawn, and past due, and they need help. These are the people we saw so far in this passage coming to Jesus for for healing. And what Jesus does, as he says, these people who know that they're depleted, who know that they need help, it is these people that get the kingdom of God, and they get it now that God has chosen to make known his kingdom, his presence amongst the people who know they need him. They get King Jesus now. The people that know they need him are those who get him. Happy are the poor because they know they need Jesus and they get God's kingdom now. But then he goes on to say that blessed are those who are hungry now because they will get fullness later. This is a deep hunger that, that realizes that nothing in this world can satisfy. That they can't do enough meditation, enough grounding, enough eating, enough consuming, that there's not enough pleasure or success in the world that can really satisfy them. They know that it doesn't fulfill, so they hunger. They hunger for fullness. They hunger for wholeness. They recognize that they'll just turn up empty on other things. And Jesus says that these people are the people who will get fullness later. They'll be completely satisfied. Then we have the weeping. And just Jesus keeps driving these points home. He says that blessed are the weeping now. There is weeping because people are seeing and feeling the injustice of the world around them. They see the poverty. They see the sicknesses. They see the abuse. They see the racism. They see the exploiting of the poor. They see it all, and they feel it, and they weep because this isn't right. And Jesus is saying, that these people will one day experience laughter. They'll experience laughter. But then finally, Jesus says the happy is the ones who experience suffering because they're persecuted because of Him, because they'll receive an eternal reward. And I want you to notice a contrast here with what we see in the woes. We had the blessings where Jesus pronounced what the, the whole life looks like. And Then we have the woes where Jesus warns against things. There is a contrast that Jesus here, he gives, he gives woes to the rich because the rich now, the people who, who, unlike the poor, think they have enough, think they have it all, think they have it together, have valued success, have put themselves above everything. What do they get? They get fullness now. That's what they get. That's their reward. If you think that this is all there is, if you think that you don't need help, this is as full as you're going to feel. This is the comfort that you're going to feel. This is the max. And if that's okay with you, this is all you're gonna get. And then he says to the full that those who live this life chasing after things, money, sex, power, influence, comfort, he says that these guys will get hunger later. Look what James says. He says, come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Painful image. You have stored up treasure in the last days. Jesus is saying that later they'll be hungry because they weren't storing up treasure with They have sought their fullness in their comfort in other things. And those things will rot away. Then he says, laughing that those who laugh are those who scoff or I think choose to turn a blind eye towards injustice in the world. They don't feel the pain of the world. They try not to see it or experience it. They're content with their lives. They don't want to get their hands dirty or get involved with the brokenness of the world. They want themselves. They're satisfied with the world as is. And Jesus promises these people weeping later. So what does all this mean? What does it mean for us sitting right here in 2023 on a snowy day? What well, it means, friends, that Jesus is calling us to a perspective in the world that recognizes that his kingdom is breaking in. He's calling us to be people who recognize that there's nothing else that can really satisfy. He's calling us to be people who recognize the deep brokenness and pain in the world and believe and feel that and long for his coming to put all things right trusting that he's going to do something about it and not willing to be satisfied with the things the world has to offer. To boil it down even further, Jesus is reorienting our lives and our minds around power, need, and acceptance. These three things we all long for, some sort of control, some sort of acceptance, but these things are only found in Jesus. A couple examples of what this looks like on the ground. I could give you stories of people like Martin Luther King who identify with racism, who call it out, willing to be persecuted and eventually shot. It's stories of people who give up their time to serve those around them. It's and the story that some of you might recognize is the story of a man who commits an awful act of murder. He gets sentenced, rightly so, and was imprisoned. He served his sentence and got out on parole. And he, when he was in prison, he found Jesus. He recognized his deep need, his poverty. And realized that only Jesus can save him. And after he got out of prison, he didn't have anywhere to go, no family to turn to, no one to welcome him, and a society that completely re- rejected him, and understandably so, because he's done heinous things. But he was a changed person. He found Jesus. There was one family that was willing to take him in. And people in the area were ticked off. They're mad. Some people fired guns in the neighborhood to let them know their disdain. There were newspaper articles written and so on. And I don't really recommend just the just taking in ex-cons. Um, there was a lot of like careful thought and discussion and deliberation and planning and thorough um, vetting of situation and working with parole officers, so forth, so forth. But why would a family risk their reputation to help someone like this? It's because of Jesus and their willingness to live in close proximity to Him, and it's a belief that the good and happy life isn't comfort and satisfaction in the things of this world, but in Christ. Isn't isn't to be esteemed by men? Isn't to have success in a monetary fashion? That that the good life is really found in believing that God is doing something in the world, recognizing that that. We are broken and poor and hungry; that there's nothing that can satisfy us. In reorienting all of our lives about Jesus, because if you don't see it in this contrast, we can put that back up on the screen. If you don't see it in this contrast, Jesus is inviting us to have an eternal perspective about the world. He's inviting us to live for eternity. He wants you to experience the blessings of following him, the blessing of having a people, the blessing of having his presence, the blessing of a new perspective and the blessing of hope. Hope that one day you'll experience fullness. Hope that one day laughter will come. Hope that one day Jesus will reward faithfulness. And what is the result of all of this? What is the result of this new perspective in life? Well, the result is joy. And it's so weird, right? Because it doesn't seem like the road that Jesus is calling to leads to joy, but it does. Because Jesus says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, take note. Your reward is great in heaven that we can have real meaningful joy in following Jesus. Paul would say it this way. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Jesus is inviting his followers to believe that, to believe that, and then to reorient their whole life around him and what he's doing in the world. To not take hold of, of what the world has to offer. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. The good life isn't found in money. It isn't found in power. It isn't found in self-satisfaction and self-fulfillment. It's found in Jesus and following him.